2,000 years ago, a child was born. And this child was said to be the son of God. His father was not his biological father, but rather his adoptive. The father was named Julius Caesar. The son, who was given the title son of God, was named Octavius. Now the question that arises is, how does the son of Caesar get the title son of God? Well, Julius Caesar became the first sole dictator of the Roman Empire. He was given the title dictator for life. Upon his death, athletic games were held in his honor. And after the funeral and during the athletic games honoring the death and life of Julius Caesar, a comet appeared in the sky. And the comet was said to last for seven days. And upon the comet appearing, immediately witnesses came forward and said, this was not just an ordinary comet, but this was indeed Julius Caesar ascending like a star into the heavens to take his place as a god among gods. Now, if your father ascends to heaven to become a god, then the sun down here on earth is obviously a son of God remaining on earth. As this Octavius ascended to the throne, he changed his name to Caesar Augustus. Augustus means something along the lines of illustrious one, exalted one, or majestic one. And when he gave himself that title, it wasn't as if it was without merit. He had, if you will, the sort of ancient world street cred to do so. See, Caesar Augustus reformed the tax system of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus built roads and monuments and rebuilt ruined cities. He invented for Rome an ancient form of mail system. He put in ancient forms of police departments and fire departments. He raised the Praetorian Guard and built the military might of Rome. It was in this time that it was said Caesar Augustus initiated what we know from history as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and it was this idea that Rome through Caesar had brought peace to the entire world. Additionally, Caesar Augustus did some things that had its significant symbolic value. For example, when Caesar returned from conquering some people or just doing some fantastic military victory, he returned to his capital with his legions behind him and the people singing his praises wearing a helmet. Upon the helmet was a star. Now, this is powerful symbolism. His father, Julius Caesar, was said to ascend to the heavens as a star. So in other words, when Caesar marches back from military victories, he's letting everyone know exactly who he is. He is the son of the star. He is the son of God. He additionally closed the gates of Janus. Janus was a god in the Roman world, a two-faced god. And he had two, face because he, two faces because it was said that he could see in the past and see into the future. Now, Janus had gates in the capital city. They were called the gates of Janus. And traditionally, the Romans said that when the gates of Janus were open, Rome was at war. And when the gates of Janus closed, the wars were over. Needless to say, in Caesar Augustus's life, there had been war after war and civil war after civil war, so much so that there were people who were alive that had never seen the gates of Janus ever closed. In other words, Rome was continuously at war. But with Caesar Augustus, who brings Pax Romana, who wears the helmet with the star, 
he closes the gates of Janus, and for the first time, many citizens of Rome saw peace ushered into the Roman Empire. This idea that Caesar Augustus was son of God was magnified in the art architecture and maybe most importantly, the currency of the day. This is something minted by Caesar Augustus. It is a picture of his father, Julius Caesar. On one side you see the face, on the other you see the star. It says Julius the Divine and of course the star reminding everyone that when they buy or sell, trade goods, receive money, give money, that indeed Julius Caesar ascended as a star like a god and Augustus his son is the son of God on earth. Now it was said that history turned its great page. A new era had begun with the life of Caesar Augustus. So much so that there were new calendars being made. And these new calendars said that upon Caesar's birthday, year one actually began. Do you see the powerful symbolism here? The whole world was leading up to a point. And upon Caesar's birthday, history turned its page, and now we're in a new era of humanity, marked by the birth of Caesar Augustus. We have one of these calendars. It's called the Prien Inscription Calendar. And here's what's written on it as a preface. Providence, which is a fancy word, it's, it's the will of the gods in the universe, has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, this is, this is crazy right here, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him, which Aza resolved in Smyrna. Now I want to point out a couple things. What does this calendar marking the new era tell us about Caesar Augustus? One, it identifies him as a savior. It says that he successfully ended all wars. And then there's that crazy line, I don't have it underlined, but that not leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he's done. That's a way of saying, None of your kids are going to be able to be as good as you. You're the best. And then, of course, he is the God Augustus. And then the last underlying section, the beginning of the good tidings for the world. Now, I want to focus on this world good tidings. In Greek, it's the word euangelion. And some of you may know that the Greek word euangelion is the word gospel. Gospel means good news. In other words... At year one, a new era began, and it is the beginning of the good news for the world, according to Caesar, the son of God. Now, a question arises, in what sense is the victory of Caesar good news? And who is it good news for? Because Caesar did a lot of killing to get there. In fact, Caesar, Augustus Caesar, had a brother. His father, Julius, actually had another child with Cleopatra, and Caesar Augustus killed him. And Caesar Augustus killed anybody who would defy him. He crushed his enemies. He slaughtered his enemies. Political dissidents were killed. And so you can say that 
in some sense, this Caesar Augustus had a gospel that brought priests to the world, but he did it by the sword, by murder, by slaughtering his enemies. Now, at the same time, you can see the pre-end calendar inscription is from 9 BC. At the same time, there is a different child born. And this different child who was born was said to be the son of God. And what's interesting is his father wasn't his biological father, it was his adopted father. And the very first followers of this child claim that history turned its great page at his birthday. The first followers, Christians, said that on the birth of Jesus, all of human history changed and was forever altered. They insisted Jesus, not Caesar, was the one who was changing the course of human history. One of the first followers of this Jesus was a guy named Mark, and he wrote a biographical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This Mark begins his story about the life of Jesus like this. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have the pre-end calendar inscription, 9 BC, the beginning of the gospel concerning Augustus, and then Mark, roughly a decade later, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now see, what these two figures, two ways or two paths are created. There is a gospel according to Caesar and a gospel according to Jesus. And the gospel of Caesar, Augustus, is just like any other gospel that had come before it. There's always rulers, tyrants, and dictators that have some supposed good news, but the good news they bring is for a particular people, and in order to bring that news to a particular people, a whole lot of other people had to suffer and die. And so the question before us is, when did history truly turn the page? When did the new era begin? And what I would submit to you today is that at the birth of Jesus, human history was so forever altered that every single person in this room, whether you believe the Christian story or not, is so thoroughly saturated in that story that you can't even think outside of the boundaries that it's giving you. You process reality through the narrative of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now you may be saying, no I don't, that's not true. Hold on. Let's return to this story because we have to understand the radical nature of this story. It forever changed the way human beings think and process and observe the world around them. So what is the story of the birth of Jesus? Some details, not all of them, but first, Jesus was born to penniless peasants. He was born to Mary and Joseph. We know they're they're poor because of, of a passage in the Bible that tells us that they didn't have enough to bring the pauper sacrifice, so they were allowed to bring the sacrifice that was allotted for the poor. Mary's a scared teenager. Joseph is traditionally a carpenter. The Greek word for carpenter is tectone. And yes, it could be translated carpenter, but it's a flexible word that can mean anything from carpenter to stonemason or construction worker or someone that works with their hands. But because we know they're poor, most likely Joseph is somewhere between a day laborer and someone who builds with his hands. Maybe it was wood so you could say carpentry, but maybe it was moving big rocks. You don't know. The word's flexible. But the point here is this. When Jesus is born into the world, he's born 
to parents in poverty. They were anything but lofty, and they were anything but royal. This is a radical subversion to any narrative that was given to any king of the time. That's not how you tell the story of a king. They're not born into poverty in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloth. It's subverting every narrative told before it. Additionally, there were shepherds there. And shepherds were also poor, but more importantly, we know from the rabbinical writings that shepherds at this time were considered ritually and ceremonially unclean. In other words, they weren't going to be invited to the church service. They're ritually and ceremonially unclean. But yet, at the birth of this Son of God, those who were not allowed in are now being invited to experience the birth of a king. Now, angels tell them, you're you're invited, come check this out. And rightfully, the shepherds are terrified. One, because they're seeing angels, but additionally, what we often missed is there's no way the shepherds would believe that they would be invited to the birth of royalty. Sort of like, oh, angels, you, you, you went to the wrong dude. You're not, you're not look, we don't, get, we don't get invited to see the births of kings. We're the lowly shepherds, we're unclean. But then there's a detail that the angel gives that clues them into what's going on. He says, you're going to find the babe, wrapped in, the babe wrapped in swaddling cloth. He's going to be lying in a manger. Who wrapped their babies in swaddling cloth? The poor people did. Who put them in mangers? The poor people did. In other words, the shepherds are told, this child is going to be born just like your sons and daughters were born. They're going to be wrapped in swaddling cloth. They're going to be put in a wooden trough. This child will be born just like your children will be born. Not in a palace, but in poverty. And the the ritualistically ceremonially unclean are invited to see the birth of the king. Additionally, there's foreigners from afar. And we know this from the Christmas stories as the three kings, but they certainly weren't three kings. The Greek word here is magos. And magos, basically, you guys, sometimes it's translated magi. That's pretty close. But essentially, these are non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan foreigners from afar. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but the world is tribal by instinct. And so if there's going to be a Jewish king who is born, it's going to be Jews who are invited to that. But at the beginning of the story of this Jewish king, the invitation goes out to people of different ethnic backgrounds, to the least likely of candidates. Now, we take for granted so much of this. We take for granted these ideas like, oh, of course the poor have dignity and should be invited to the table. Of course people with different ethnic backgrounds should be invited. Oh, of course shepherds are unclean and that all should be invited to see. We, we just think that everyone's always thought like that. No one thought like that. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Caesar's gospel didn't look like this, and anyone with power or might before, their gospels didn't look like this. If you were Caesar, your gospel said, I will acquire as much power as possible to crush my enemies, not invite them into the table. You get power to crush your enemies and you acquire wealth to distance yourself from the shepherds, to distance yourself from the poor, to distance yourself from different ethnicities. 
That's how the world forever worked. But at the birth of Jesus, this story fundamentally changed human history that pretty much all of us in this room presuppose these ideas. Caesar's gospel begins with a man acquiring power and wealth and then ascending above the stars to take his place among the gods. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the Son of God descending beneath the stars to become one of us, to be born a vulnerable, naked baby in a manger. It's a subversion to all stories. The Jesus birth story subverts all other stories of power and it breaks the framework. And we have been so thoroughly saturated in this that for the most part, we take for granted all of these things. The Christian story changed the world. I'll give you an example. Roughly 300 years after Jesus, and when the first Christians are trying to live out the teachings of Jesus, um, a pagan emperor named Julian rises to be the emperor of, uh, of Rome. And Julian, the Christians called him Julian the Apostate because he was raised Christian, but then be reverted back to paganism. And he had a goal. His goal was to make the Roman Empire completely pagan again, worshiping the gods and goddesses of old. He hated the fact that more and more people were becoming Christian. And so he said, how can I, as emperor of the Roman Empire, get people to forget and leave behind Christianity and go back to the old ways of Rome to worship the gods and goddesses? And he thought up a lot of things, and he goes, well, we can't, we can't persecute them. We can't kill them, because other emperors did that. And when the Christians were persecuted, guess what happened? More people became Christian. And so he observed the fact that Christianity was spreading and you couldn't kill them and you couldn't persecute them because the church would just keep on growing. In a letter entitled Against the Galileans, and Galileans was the term he used for Christians, he says this, it is disgraceful that no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Now follow this. What Julian observes is the fact that Christians are taking care of not only their own, but everyone else in the Roman Empire, even if they weren't of the same religion. This is such a foreign concept. That is a foreign idea in the ancient world. And so he goes, and he initiates a plan. He goes, Rome will now start copying the Christians, and we are going to, and he did this. He he invented one of the the, the first sort of like empire-wide welfare programs to start helping the needy and the oppressed so that the Christians would get beat to the punch to doing that. But this is the point. When the Christians were out there doing that, it was insanity, And the only reason why Julian, the apostate, adopted it is because he saw that it was working. All of these ideas about caring for the needy, the poor, inviting the outcast in, that was insane for the majority of human history. Why would you do that? But because of the Christian story, everything changed. And so because of that, there's this 
inescapability of this child. And if you're a Christian, you may take for granted that everything you know and love, the way you think, those just didn't come from some random place. That is 2,000 years of fine age distilled Judeo-Christian ethic. And you have been so thoroughly saturated in it, you can take it for granted. What's even more interesting taking place in our culture right now is many people in the Western world are abandoning Christianity. And they're leaving behind Christianity. And when you talk and hear reasons why people are abandoning Christianity, they are judging Christianity with the tools, measurement standards, and ideals that they inherited from Christianity. What do I mean by that? So you might have heard someone, or maybe this is you today, say, I don't like Christianity. I'm rejecting the Christian story. I don't believe in it because... Uh, Christianity has historically been about the patriarchy and it's been oppressive to women. I go, wait a second. Where did you get the idea? Where did the notion come from that women should be treated as equal to men? You assume that to be true. The majority of human history didn't follow that idea. For the most part in human history, women were treated as second-class citizens. The vast majority of cultures didn't treat women with equality. Where did you get the idea that women should be treated with equality? You got that from Genesis 1 and from the life of Jesus. That is 2,000 years of distilled Christian ethic coming to you. Or you might say, "Uh, I don't like Christianity because it's, it's not a tolerant religion. It seems intolerant. I'm a person of tolerance. Where did you get the idea that tolerance is a virtue? For all human history, you were to crush your enemies. The bad guys are out there, kill them, we're the good guys, and we'll win the day. Where did you get the idea that tolerance was a virtue? You got that from Jesus, because Jesus taught his followers not only that they should be tolerant, but when they have enemies, they should what? Bless them and pray for them. And who wants to do that? You don't. If you're a Christian, you may think you do, but you don't. No one wants to to bless and pray for their enemies. When you get cut off on the freeway, You don't, oh, God bless you, go in peace, have a good day. That's the the time you pray the most, but you don't pray for them. You pray, Father in heaven, sovereign you are, may a police officer see them speeding right now. You got the idea that tolerance is a virtue from the Christian story. Because Jesus taught you not only to tolerate your enemies, but to pray for them and bless them. Or you may say, uh, Christianity is is filled with hypocrisy, and you know what, the church doesn't do enough for the poor and the needy and the broken. Excuse me, where did you get the idea that the poor were worthy recipients of care, compassion, and that the poor inherently had dignity? You got that from the life of Jesus. That didn't come from nowhere. It's 2,000 years of distilled Christian ethic. You may be saying something like, well, I don't reject the story and the child, uh, not for those reasons. I just like to think logically and scientifically about things. Oh, scientifically. In order to do science, you have to have a set of presuppositions. You presuppose that the universe is an observable phenomenon that has certain laws it's bound to obey. And those laws that it's bound to obey are immutable. They are unchanging. 
Additionally, you presuppose that your five senses can accurately observe said phenomenon. Why should you trust your senses? If you're a product of random chance, your senses were not constructed to detect truth, they were constructed for survivability. And survivability and the detection of truth are not the same thing by any measure. See, you are so thoroughly baptized in the Christian narrative, every fiber in your being is thinking through the lens of the narrative that the gospel of Jesus gave you. Even if you don't believe in it, you've been saturated in 2,000 years. To reject the Christian story, you use the tools, measurements, and ideals the Christian story gave you. So the question for you is, what child is this? There's a gospel that Caesar has, and trust me, it's the same gospel that's told by every ruler, dictator, and would-be king of this world. And there's the gospel of the child. There's a gospel that says Caesar, and fill in the blank with whoever, is a man of power who ascends to even greater power. And then there's a gospel that says there is one who has true power, but descended beneath the stars to be born as one of us. And the question is, when did history turn the page? When did the new era begin? And there's an inescapability to the fact whether you believe in God or not, that history was forever changed by this child born in a manger. So what child is this? What child, what king invites the lowly and the poor and the foreigner to observe his birth? What king comes to be born naked in a wooden trough? What king comes to die naked on a wooden cross? What other person turned the pages of history like this child? So friends, wherever you're at in life, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you don't know, you're struggling, you're wrestling, who this child is is the most important question you can ask. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't know, I encourage you to think twice before you so easily pass him by. And if you are a Christian, on this Christmas Eve, my prayer for you is that your heart would be overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratitude, that the world was forever changed. History did turn its page. And at the birth of Jesus, the true good news rang out, and it was good news for every last human being. The poor, the broken, the rich, the weak, the powerful, all are invited to believe and trust in this gospel, to believe that there is a king unlike other kings, a king who descends rather than ascends. And so may your hearts be filled with gratefulness and gratitude that this God did all of this for you, that he didn't stay up there, he comes to be one of us, to carry the full weight of the human burden and condition. And he's born naked in the wooden trough and he dies naked on the wooden cross. May you be filled with the true peace of the world, the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you uh, for the story. It's the greatest story ever told. Every story is, is a copy of this, this story. 
And so as we turn into closing with songs, uh, I pray that your people would worship you and honor your son. Our hearts would be filled with joy and thanksgiving, and we would truly wrestle with the question, what child is this? May we know who he is, and may he be near to us in this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.